And today we start with an introduction to the Psalms. The Psalms are, hopefully this is, I don't obvious as a mean word, hopefully it's clear, it's the most edited book of the Bible. It is the most intentionally not, I'm going to sit down and write a book start to finish, but I'm going to bring together a bunch of things. And so in the Psalms, you have multiple authors and you probably have multiple editors because of the significant period of time over which this collection would have come together. The Psalms are ancient. They are very, very old. David wrote a lot of them, which we'll talk about, but Moses authored at least one of these Psalms. In my office, I have a framed picture of uh, when they first discovered and started touring the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I was in seminary at the time and lived in Charlotte. And a lot of us students went. And that's the type of thing that felt like it would be lame to me. We're going to go look at an old piece of paper behind glass. And I was amazed at how impactful it was that the words we were studying in Hebrew class from the Psalms, and now I'm looking at this piece of paper that is thousands and thousands of years old, and it is word for word what I was just reading in class. It was really amazing. The Psalms are ancient. God's people have been using them for a long time. The Psalms are highly organized. Does anybody know how the Psalms are organized? The, the largest organizational scheme of the Psalms. You got the one book. Now I want to break it down into subdivisions. Do you know how many subdivisions we have? Five. How many books are there in the Pentateuch? <laughs> five. How many books are there in the Psalms? Five. So the Psalms is five books. Each book ends with doxology. So Kate, turn to Psalm 41. Nick, turn to Psalm 72. Daphne, turn to Psalm 89. Karen, turn to Psalm 106. Uh, Jake, uh, read whatever selective snippets you choose from 145 to 150 when I get there. Every book ends with doxology. Psalm, so the first book is chapters 1 through 41. Kate, read 41, 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. You hear doxology in there? That is quite literally a doxology. The second book is chapters 42 to 72. Read uh, 72, 18 through 20. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen, amen. The third book is Psalm 73 to 89. Read 89, 52. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. The fourth book is 90 to 106. Read 106, 48. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. What is the doxology of the fifth book of the Psalms? 107 to 150. You would think I would say, Jake, turn to 150 and read the last couple of verses. But instead, what am I going to say? Jake, turn to book five of the Psalms and read the last five chapters. The last five chapters, starting in 145. Go for it. <laughs> great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. 
My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Sing praises to my God while I have my being. The Lord will reign forever. Your God is I unto all generations. Praise the Lord. On and on and on. We know how that goes. Psalms 145 to 150 are called uh, a fireworks of praise. They are the finale at the fireworks show you go to. I mean, that's the whole thing about a 15 minutes fireworks show, right? Is is it's a lot of kind of waiting around, and occasionally you have these big booms and these big blasts. Well, that's your doxologies at the end of this, and then when it's time for the finale at the fireworks show, it's just nonstop, and that is Psalm 145. To 150. So that's the, that's the biggest organizational framework for the Psalms, is these five books. And we'll talk about those in terms of authorship and timing and purpose and all that kind of stuff in just a minute. Let's talk about one other method of organization for the Psalms, which is that if there are five books in the Psalms, and there are, there's also something special about the first five psalms. The first five psalms are an introduction to the whole Psalter. Psalm 1 is about the personal devotion use of the psalms, me and God. Psalm 2 is about the corporate use of the psalms, all nations called to worship God, God at work within the world. Um, Psalms 3 uh, is about the reality of trouble in the world, corporately and individually. We're going to talk about that a lot. The Psalms are, there's not a most honest book in the Bible because every word is true, but emotionally the Psalms are the most honest book in the Bible. They tell the truth about our experience of reality. And then Psalms 4 and 5 lay out the rhythm of spiritual life. Psalm 5 is morning prayer, prayer at the beginning of the day that helps set our priorities straight, that makes us open to what God may have in store for us that day. And Psalm 4 is evening prayer. What do you do when you had a crummy day? You give that day back to God. You give it back to him in prayer so that you can sleep in peace. If you have a good day, you're grateful to the God who gives good gifts to his children. And because they're Hebrew and all their days are screwed up, they put nighttime before morning. That's, that's my explanation for that. You see Psalms 1 through 5 as an, as an introduction to the whole thing. Editorial activity, the work of these editors, is clear in the Psalms from Psalm 1 to Psalm 150. You see it all the way through. And I would say the structure of the whole, if you zoom out and just look at the whole of the Psalms, it is a very familiar and realistic assessment of life because the overall trajectory of the Psalms is up from Psalm 1 and 2 and 3, the trouble of life, to Psalms 145 through 150, unending praise of God, the overall trajectory of the Psalms is up. But is this straight line the path the Psalms take? No, and neither is your life. This is the path that the Psalms take through all the ups and downs of life. And that editorial activity is on purpose. The, the Psalms were put together by godly editors under the, the 
work of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of being this song book for the Christian experience in a fallen and broken world waiting for the fulfillment of all things from God the Savior. Questions about structure, and then we'll talk about uh, authorship. On the editorial side, I just hadn't really thought that much about it, but it seems like a good bit of the Old Testament. Um, I mean, the history books, obviously. Yeah, yeah. M- M- Moses edited uh, 1 through 5, but somebody had to edit it after Moses because the Pentateuch includes Moses' death, which I don't think he wrote. And then the history books, obviously, have compilers and editors. Even with Job that we just read, somebody pulled together Job's experience. and sur- Job may have very much been a part of that. But the text doesn't say, and so we you know, kind of got to go Occam's razor there. There is a lot of editorial activity. This is what, uh, in the brief period of my life, when I was excited by theological studies, this is the part that excited me, was the literary character of the Old Testament and how God wove together a Holy Spirit overseeing, superintending a process that God designed to be perfect from the beginning through the use of really thoughtful and skilled, faithful human beings practicing their craft with excellence. And Psalms is an example of an amazing amount of excellence in literature pulling this together in this way. And the organization and structure is is really helpful. And that's the goal, not just... Not just cool, not just arbitrarily, oh, I see what he did. No, no, helpful. (laughs) The goal of God's word is to change us. That is a necessarily helpful purpose. All right, let's talk about authorship. Do we know, oh, this is going to be awful. This is the problem. Fagan, would you get, oh, no, you're doing something else. The, The rag at the other whiteboard doesn't make a disaster. I like how everybody's face when they see this is, oh, that's going to ruin that board. (laughs) How how could you? (laughs) Is it that bad? Oh, I have spray. Thank you. You were doing more important things. I needed my board repaired. Yeah, the eraser is the problem. That's funny. Uh, Throw it away. Man, after my own heart. Uh, Do we know who wrote the Psalms? And the answer is, each individual psalm, I mean. Sometimes. Sometimes we do. So the one challenge with this eraser is that it doesn't erase. It doesn't smear. It just leaves be stronger. That sounds about right. All right, it depends. Books one through three. I probably should have put some numbers here. Books one through three, 95% of the time, the Psalms tell us who the author is in books one through three. Book one is all Psalms of David, all Davidic Psalms with one, maybe two exceptions. Um, 10 and 33 do not say they're Psalms of David. 10 really looks like it's a part B or a verse 2 of Psalm 9, which says it's a Psalm of David. So that one I think is pretty easy to explain. 33, I don't know. But book 1 is all Davidic Psalms except for those two. 
Book two is mostly Davidic Psalms with a few others mixed in. And then book three, all of the Psalms give an authorship designation. They're either um, David or people associated with David. <laughs> Just books one through three are the, the Davidic period Psalms. And we'll talk more about the phrase Psalm of David in just a minute and what that can mean. But when you're thinking about biblical history, books one through three are the David era songs. They're the Psalms that David wrote or were written for David, were used in the courts of David, people who knew David, musicians associated with him, that sort of thing. Once you get to these Psalms, books four and five, only about a third of them have authorship titles. Uh, so have authorship designation. It's also the case that far fewer of them have titles as well. In books one through three, you'll often not just get authorship, but you'll get a title. This is a song for the some, some, some thing. Upon, boom, boom, boom. Like, oh, okay, well, that's what was up. Some books four and five, you don't get as much of that, uh, what they were for or what was up. What this suggests is that you have an early pre-exilic Psalter. What was the songbook of the people of God coming out of the Davidic kingdom? And then you have a later post-exile. What was added to the people of God, what word did God give his people and words his people gave back to him in light of the exile and the time following. That's, that's the way I would think about it. It's pre-exilic and exile or post-exilic, which is great. <laughs> like that doesn't create a problem for us. It, it, is a, uh, it, is, it makes the songbook richer that the words we have are the people of God's experience when the kingdom was at its height under David and when the kingdom was at its pit in exile in Babylon. There's nothing you can experience that lacks a situational or emotional equivalent in the Psalms. That's why it's, you can't talk this way about the Bible, but I'm about to because I'm not very good at this. It's why it's my favorite book to go to, because you can't ever go to it and not find something that is with you, not find something that is where you're at. Um, you know, sometimes I go to Proverbs and it t- tells me what to do and I, it's not what I want, but I can go to Psalms and Psalms will tell me where I am and then tell me what to do. But because it validated where I am, I feel better about that. Uh, questions about that, and then we'll talk about a category of psalms that will is important. So within the kingdom concept, Davidic kingdom post-exilic, one of the key categories of songs psalms are kingship psalms, and these are they're called royal psalms is another name for them. And these are scattered throughout the Psalter, but they're not scattered just uh, arbitrarily. They're placed carefully 
for good purposes. Psalm 2, we already talked about as an introduction, the devotional purpose of the Psalms being not just individually, but for the whole world, that Psalms have a corporate purpose. So the first royal Psalm is in Psalm 2, where God does what relevant to the king? Psalm 2. Oh, we gotta, it's going to be fun to preach through the Psalms then. We've got to work on our Psalms knowledge. God establishes his king to rule the world. He sets his king on his throne. Um, Psalm 72, that's the end of book two, is a description. It's a royal psalm of how the king should rule in righteousness. That's the next one. So we got two. We understand why. We got 72, which is at the very end of book one. We understand why kings should rule in righteousness. Then, what do you think the next one is? 89. Yep, 89. End of book three, it speaks of unfulfilled promises relative to the king. Now go back and think about my organization for a minute. Why in the world would Psalm 89, the end of book three, have a royal psalm dealing with, we thought all the promises were going to be fulfilled in David, but here's all these promises that aren't fulfilled. Because that's the end of David. That's the end of, to their eyes, the throne of David even, which God would uh, always preserve a remnant to protect. So then... The next one is Psalm 90. We've got to get to the beginning of this. See, we did beginning, end, end, beginning, even though here it's two, but there's a really good devotional purpose for that. The next royal psalm is Psalm 90, because in, which Moses writes, by the way. Wait a minute. We went from David not fulfilling the promises. Oh, no. Woe is me, 89, unfulfilled promises to 90, also a royal psalm, written by Moses. And what does Moses say? No matter what your circumstances are, God is the everlasting God. Oh, that's good. Right? That's, that's good. That's, that's excellence in editorial skill. Um, and the one after that is also a royal psalm. Three royal psalms in a row. 89. We had all these promises tied up in kingship and it didn't work out. 90 from Moses, God is the everlasting God. And despite circumstances, he is faithful to his promises. And do you know what Psalm 91 is? Somebody, Noah. Yeah. Nick, are you there? Read 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your hand. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. 
you will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Any questions? <laughs> it's the strongest psalm of confidence in God in the whole Bible. Psalm 91 is just the, no, I will. I will deliver you. I will cover you. You will not fear. No evil will touch you. This is what will happen because God is king. Psalm 91 is the strongest psalm of confidence in the Bible. Then you go into kind of a cacophony in a good way of royal psalms. You get the enthronement psalms, 93 to 99. God is king over the whole universe, not one maverick molecule, all that good stuff. And then Psalm 105 and 106. Now we're at the end of book four. So we did all of that stuff in book four, reorienting, which is a word you're going to hear a lot about the Psalms, reorienting God's people in light of the fall of the Davidic kingdom, in light of the exile, God's people feel like their whole world was turned upside down. Nothing makes sense anymore. God's promises are up for grab. And so book four is this massive dose of no, God is still king. God is king of the universe and you are secure. And so then book four ends with two psalms describing the history of God's people. And, and it's the call for God to gather them up from exile and to restore his people and to deliver them. All right, that's 105, 106. So what's Psalm 107? Anybody know? Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. Stop there. That whole psalm, perfect, is about deliverance from exile. Oh, that's good. You see what this editor did here? We're in exile. Woe is us. Our king is gone. Our kingdom is gone. Life is terrible. Nothing will ever be good again. This is awful. Wait a minute. The Lord is still enthroned. You are utterly secure in him. He establishes his king over the earth and his king rules. You will not be shaken. And therefore, Psalm 107 is the people saying back to God, post-exile, oh, oh, you did do what you said you were going to do. Oh, you did get us out of the pit. You did deliver us. That's Psalm 107. So then there's also a lot of royal psalms in book 5. 108 through 110 is the kind of king we need. 113 to 118 is the deliverance that king will provide. 120 to 134, these are very interesting because they go back and reflect on, reflect on the Davidic period. David is king and life in the temple um, and it seems like the, the editor, <laughs> this is speculation, but I think this is one of those cases in the Old Testament where the editor doesn't know what he doesn't know. He doesn't know about Jesus yet. He doesn't know how God is going to resolve these things. So he falls, as he looks forward in history, he falls backward on what's familiar. What did it look like for God to bless us under David? Let me talk about that life 
because I don't know what God is going to make that look like in a post-exilic, post-David world. And then right in between, you notice there's only one psalm missing here between the last two sets of royal psalms. 113 to 118 is this block of deliverance psalms. 120 to 134 is life as a delivered people using Davidic and temple language. What's in between being delivered and life with God? What's 119 about? Walking with God and his law. Walking with God in holiness. The, the thread that connects the promises of God to our experience and realization of those promises in our lives is life with God. Walking according to the word that he's giving us. Deliverance is affected by obedience to God's law. Questions about that? So books four and five reflect the concerns of a post-exilic Israel. It's like these books are the answer to Psalm 89. When will the promises be fulfilled? And, and we've got these psalms sort of standing there as the answer. They lay the, the foundation for life in the already not yet community, <laughs> the post-exilic community. Um, and what's so helpful about those, even though for us, many of the psalms of David earlier in the Psalter are probably the most memorized, the most familiar, and those are valuable. These are the psalms that are written out of people in exactly our experience, the already not yet experience. Um, we have more clarity than they have because we see Christ. But that's why these two, these sort of two distinctions exist. So probably what happens is this is brought together at some time soon after David in the, the height of the Davidic kingdom. These form separately collections of psalms in the, the, the Jewish community in these different periods of history. And God sends an editor or editors along the way to bring all of this together to organize and to arrange it into a helpful whole. That is probably how all this happened. What are the titles in 119 of all the different sections? It is an alphabetical acrostic. It is the equivalent of starting each of those sections with the letter A, B, C, D, E, F. The Psalms were for memorization. Papyrus was a late invention and giant rocks weren't free. And it was hard to make copies. So the Bible was primarily made to be memorized in the Old Testament. Many of the Psalms are easy to memorize. Psalm 119 is not one of them. If you turn to 119, you will turn and you will keep turning and you will keep turning and you will keep turning. And so it's an alphabetical acrostic. Every paragraph starts with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. That does a couple things. It, one, it helps you with memorization. Two, it makes a lovely theological point, which is what did we say 119 was about? The law, the law of God. To what areas of life does the law of God speak into? A to Z and everything in between. Questions about that? All right. How the Psalms are used and how they're to be understood changes throughout history. The, the study of God's word and the use of God's word is never insulated 
from the philosophical world around it. That's why the effect of the Enlightenment on Christianity is, a, is an important thing to study. Why did so many people who appeared to be connected to God fall away from the faith during the Enlightenment? Well, because the Enlightenment claimed to give them some answers they were looking for all along anyway, and they didn't like God's answers. So the interpretation of the Psalms centers around your beliefs of God himself and how God does or does not interact with his people. That's really what your understanding of the Psalms is going to come down to. What do you believe about God? Do you believe God interacts with his people or is God just the divine clockmaker who made the thing, wound it, and walked away? And if God does interact with his people, how does he interact with his people? And whatever the answers to those questions are throughout history, that's affected how the Psalms were understood or were used. So let me, the, the Enlightenment's an easy one because most of y'all are familiar with what happened in the Enlightenment. So the, the, the critical beliefs of the Enlightenment were that God is not actively involved in history, that human reason is the measure of what's acceptable and what's not, what's believable and what's not. And so then they would say, you take those two presuppositions and you approach the Bible exactly the same way you would approach any other book. There cannot be anything supernatural in the book because there is no supernatural. There cannot be anything prophetic in the book speaking truthfully and factually about future history because nobody can tell the future. And, and there's nothing useful about looking for answers outside of ourselves anyway. So the Bible doesn't have any help it can offer us on that front. And that, that's impacted how the Enlightenment uh, or how the Psalms were understood after the Enlightenment. And then you get into things like source criticism. You get into some very pragmatic interpretations. And all of this falls back to people's foundational beliefs that there's nothing supernatural in the world, that God is not God, and that God, if he were, he doesn't intervene with us. There's all kinds of problems with that. I mean, obviously the biggest problem is you're not believing what God says, but even some more liberal branches of Christianity and liberal scholars over the years have had a very pragmatic problem with that, which is why would God put a useless book? They believe this is the word, but why would God put a useless book in our hands? If these are just songs from people, not from God, whose experience is unrelated to ours because we don't live under a Davidic monarchy, why would God give us a useless book? Uh, and, and the good of that is that sort of pulled the church back to looking for practical application from the Psalms. The Psalms are useful in the life of God's people. Some scholars took that too far and made very one-to-one -one correlations um, doesn't matter. What happened more recently was scholarship in a good way, which doesn't happen all the time, from other disciplines filtered into theology, which is this more literary approach. 
you look at ancient texts, and people used to look at ancient texts as if they were the work of barbarians whose simple minds couldn't understand things like we can today. And now what happens is when scholars engage with ancient texts, they assume that those people knew what they were doing too, and that what they were doing had some meaningful purpose in their context, the way if we wrote something today that it would. And so that literary emphasis, why were they organized this way, tries to reconcile the historical situation with the literary approach. Yes, psalms were written in particular contexts. These people were writing psalms under a Davidic monarchy or Moses, some of them even before. These people were living in a post-exilic or exile community. Yes, those contexts matter, but those contexts have uh, themes that can be pulled out even into our lives. And yes, psalms can be used in worship, They can be used in private devotion. They can be used for thoughtful study, Bible study. They can be applied individually and corporately. There's a lot that can be done with Psalms if we understand them uh, rightly. We've gotten to a pretty good place in in Psalm scholarship within at least the, the theological world that we are in. There's a rationale for the organization of the Psalms that's very helpful. The specific liturgical setting for the psalm is de-emphasized. It's not a, the fact that it was made for the temple doesn't mean that it could only be used in temple worship. There's value outside of that. And then the psalms, remember, zooming out even one bigger level, the psalms live within the block of scripture and the tradition that is called wisdom literature. The psalms are themselves filled with wisdom motif, these sort of proverbs that can be followed throughout. So what does that mean for us? What do we do with the Psalms? First, just receive the Psalms first on a very personal level. These are the prayers of individuals offered in a variety of situations. And these experiences were not given to us in prose, historical narrative. They were given to us in poetry, which is an invitation for us to apply them to our own situations. That's, that's the, I won't say the purpose, it is a significant purpose of biblical poetry. Is It's an invitation to you, the reader, to expand your horizons just beyond who, what, where, when, and why. It's to put yourself there. The Psalms arose from life experience in a lot of different types of situation. And so that historical context does matter for individual Psalms and as we think about their context within the Psalter itself. And then also the Psalms were used and should be used in corporate worship. Not everything in the Psalms reflects what they did in corporate worship, you know, the, the psalms are uh, often used by those that grew up in the charismatic community like I did as justification for a lot. Hey, why don't we dance in worship? Why don't we? Well, if you saw the, the video series we watched on Spirit and Truth, he asked the question, well, yeah, the psalms also say worship God in your beds. So do we pull our mattresses into worship? And, you know, we all have nap time together as part of the service. No, the Psalms talk about worship in a broad range of context. And and we're supposed to be students of Scripture in the Psalms and in other places to know how those are to be applied in worship.
I have a couple other notes, but I do want to leave a minute for questions because I want to be not so rushed in this. But any questions? Big picture on the Psalms. And then what we're going to do is dig into the genres and the types of Psalms just as each category. But any questions here? One of my favorite quotes is from one of the Victorian hymn writers. I don't remember which one. Uh, it's my whole goal in writing hymns is to make the Psalms explicitly Christian when they are implicitly Christian yeah. to the core. Um, so yep. the, the, there was a history of interpretation where they lost that. To me, it's my, how, how can you look at the Psalms and not think they're relevant to us today? But yeah, I don't know. I have no experience of wondering whether God's promises for me are true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, these unbelievers who wrote Psalms who said, why didn't God answer their prayers? What was wrong with their faith? How long, O Lord? Weak, weak-minded fools. I will say one, one difference that just occurred to me that might be helpful to make clear between the Psalms and some other places in Scripture, you'll hear me complain about the Bible a fair amount when it comes to chapter numbers and headings in the rest of Scripture, because those are post-scriptural. The ESV study committee put those headings there. The chapters are much older than that, but the chapters were not handed down from God. They're much later than the original manuscripts. That's not correct of the titles in the Psalms. They are authentic, they are canonical, and they are very, very old. Perhaps not original, but editorially original. Very, very old. And those titles include a wide array of things. They've got author information. They've got technical terms. What's the type of psalm? They've got musical terms. They've got melody indicators, um, liturgical indicators, historical notices. What was happening when David wrote this psalm? And so the psalms can have a lot. Uh, Somebody, Psalm 5, whoever can get there fast... Read the title of Psalm 5. To the choir master, for the flutes, a psalm of David. So what do we have here? Well, it's a psalm written by David, or we'll get back to Psalm of David. To the choir master, for the flutes. This is a flute-heavy piece. All right, I dig it. I guess Karen digs it. These things help us in the use of psalms, or at least they helped them in the use of psalms then, to know how to use it. David says in 2 Samuel that his desire is that the people of God would be taught the Psalms, that the Psalms would be used regularly in the life of the believer and in worship. Some Psalms also have prescripts and postscripts. Usually this is clear. Every now and then it can be a little tricky because, again, lack of punctuation, those crazy Hebrews. And so every now and then you can't quite tell, is this phrase the end of the previous Psalm, the postscript, Or is it the prescript to the next psalm? And there's not a bunch of those, but you have a few of them. Um, Psalm 88 is a confusing one. There's two classifications. It's a song and a contemplation. There's two authors, Haman and the sons of Korah. And then it puts to the chief musician first in the list, which is usually last in the list. And there's just some oddities like that. It's the only one that does that. There may be some scribal error somewhere along the way. Again, lack of punctuation. What are these people supposed to do? You're the sons of Korah because you do see that a lot. Yeah, so let's talk about authorship for a minute because that'll, that'll answer that. The most common author of the Psalms is David, and then the other frequent ones you see are the sons of Korah and Asaph. David, by the way, when it says Psalm of David, it's a Lamed David. The closest thing would be like, 
uh, in a modern language would be like in French, or if you've been to Washington, D.C., L'Enfant Plaza, <laughs> of Enfant Plaza. It's of David, which can mean to David, for David, by David, for the use of David, dedicated to David. There's some David in there somewhere. <laughs> That's what we're saying. Now, there is another type of mark that's translated of David in your Bible that is making it very clear that that is an authorship claim. The Lamed is used differently, and I'll be happy to diagram that for you. Uh, Never. (laughs) David was an author of Psalms, but David was also a singer of Psalms. Psalm 18, David sings it in 2 Samuel 22. David sings a psalm in 2 Samuel 1. We also know from 1 Samuel 16, what instrument was David skilled at? The harp. harp. David was a skilled harpist. And so we know David was a player of psalms with his singer of psalms. And and you'll get a lot of that in, in the titles is where you find that out. Korah was the grandson of somebody. It's the, it's the priest. It's the Levitical priests. Levi has three sons, and one of those three sons is the grandfather of Korah. The point of all of that is one of the set-aside priests of the priestly class in the uh, liturgical tradition of Israel, and it's Korah's sons that were the author of those hymns. The Psalms also have different types that they'll use technical terms for. So Psalms, mizmor is a word that's used. A mizmor was accompanied by instruments. That was a song that you sang with instruments, which is why it's always so funny to me that there are certain traditions that are Psalms only, no instruments. And it's like you can't even sing the Psalms in the Bible the way they tell you to sing the songs in the Bible. You're supposed to have an instrument. Then there's a sheer. A sheer is a, is a song. It may be unaccompanied or not. What do we call an unaccompanied song now? Nope. A poem. Y'all are overcomplicating it. We call it a poem. A song without music is a poem. And then there's a miktam. Another type it uses is a miktam. And do you know what that is? I don't either. Nobody does. <laughs> drums. Those are the drum solos. <laughs> you have these musical terms with the stringed instruments to the choir master. That would be to the director of music. Hey, use the whole choir on this one. Let's really get the crowd going. And then you have another musical term that commonly appears in the Bible. You know this. It's in the text of the psalm itself. It appears all the time, sometimes in italics. What is it? Selah. Nobody knows for sure what Selah means. It seems at this point pretty clear that Selah is basically the equivalent of a rest symbol in our musical notations. It's telling the musicians to pause, that this is a place to stop and to let what was just sung uh, sink in. Then the Psalms have melody indicators. According to the Shereminith, according to the Alamoth, according to the Getith, according to Muth Labin. That's my favorite. Do you know what those are? Have you ever looked at the bottom of our hymnal? And in the bottom right, there will be a word in all caps, elecom or redhead. Do you know what that is? It's a tune. That's the name of a tune. 
That's what these are. According to, and then it's got some crazy Hebrew name. Those would have been familiar tunes. So it would be like us reading something that says, sing it to the tune of London Bridges. Liturgical indicators for the dedication of the temple, for the Sabbath day, for giving thanks. Those are clear enough. Historical titles telling you what's happened, clear enough. So we've got all that. So what we're going to do is study the Psalms by genre. Wisdom Psalms, Psalms of Confidence, Lament Psalms, Thanksgiving Psalms, Psalms of Remembrance, Kingship Psalms. There's all these different types of Psalms that we're going to study together. And the way I'm going to organize them, since we only have four weeks, is around three concepts, and I'm going to take one rabbit trail. We're going to group together all the Psalms of Orientation, Psalms that declare life as it ought to be. Then we're going to do Psalms of Disorientation. The Psalms of that inner turmoil we have that we just read about in Job, because this world is not as it ought to be. And we're experiencing this and it's disorienting. God said one thing, we experience another. There's a lot of Psalms of disorientation. That's where we have to do the rabbit trail because one type of Psalm of disorientation are imprecatory Psalms. And so we'll do a week on imprecatory Psalms so that Jake can call down fire on all his enemies. And then the last category will be the Psalms of new orientation, because that's where the Psalms ultimately try to bring us, is not seeing the world as it will forever be, because we don't live there yet, knowing that, but that's not where we live, not being disoriented by the world in which we live, but having a new orientation that God provides so that we can walk in this life in faith. We can walk in this life with the same confidence that they should have walked in it under the Davidic kingdom and the monarchy, that we can walk in this life in confidence because we have the law of the Lord is true, is pure. The precepts are our delight. That's where we're going.